Chapter Thirty One of Great Men and Famous Women, Volume Four, edited by Charles F. Horn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Prince von Bismarck, eighteen fifteen to eighteen ninety eight, by Prince Otuski. The aureole of unpopularity, which encircled Bismarck's brow during four short years of inaugural premiership, has to all appearance vanished under the influence of unbroken success, making room throughout the world for a confiding deference to his capacity and forethought that every year seems to intensify. It is he, in the belief of most governments, who has preserved to them what never was more indispensable for their very existence, peace in Europe. With supreme adroitness, he avoids entanglements for himself and his country bears many in her front, patiently before retorting, keeps up the appearance of a good understanding after its substance has long passed away, but when fairly engaged in diplomatic contention, lays out his field in a manner that ensures success. People agree, therefore, that it is best to take him as he is, and it is in the nature of man when he has once accorded that favor to a fellow creature to take him as he is, that he ends by liking him. Thus Bismarck, of all living men, the most unlikely to succeed in the race after a worldwide popularity, is probably at this moment the best-liked man in either hemisphere. His own countrymen have shown a decided indisposition to admit him among their household gods. To them he was, from the commencement of his political career, the very embodiment of what had gradually become the most objectionable type of Teuton existence, the unmitigated squireen or junker. With his poverty and arrogance, with his hunger and thirst after position and good living, with his hatred for the upstart liberal burgher class. Away with the cities! I hope I may yet live to see them leveled to the ground." Is there not a ring of many centuries of social strife, so laboriously kept down by the reigning dynasty, in these stupendous words, which were pronounced by Bismarck in 1847, when among the leaders of the conservatives, in the first embryo parliament of the Prussian monarchy, and, if uncongenial to the generation of Prussians among whom he had grown up, how infinitely greater was the dislike against him of South Germans, more gifted as a rule by nature, to whom the name of Prussian is synonymous of all that is straight-laced, and overweening, and unnatural, and generally inconvenient. Little of that sentiment remains among the Germans of the present day. Such strangers as have had the opportunity of observing the attitude of the nation during the late celebration of his seventieth birthday, agree in declaring them to have been spontaneous, enthusiastic, and at times almost aggressive. Some tell us, to be sure, that the farther from Berlin, the more gushing has been the ecstasy. The electors of Professor Wickau and of Herr Luwe, on whose electoral districts a torchlight procession on the eve of Bismarck's birthday had to elbow its way through immense crowds, must have kept at home. The municipality of Berlin, a model body of civic administrators, sent a birthday letter to their honorary citizen, but abstained with proper self-respect, from tendering their congratulations through a deputation. No Berlin citizen of any importance had a hand in the management of the procession. Yet, if thousands kept aloof, 
tens of thousands shared the national enthusiasm students of universities chiefly but older men too even in distrustful radical berlin and as for south germany where the gospel of protection seems perhaps to be more firmly believed in than any other we read of trains to berlin taken by storm banquets processions chorus singing of real heartfelt rapturous effervescence there cannot be a shadow of doubt that to numberless non-prussians at any rate the new era of german unity has brought a symbol of greatness not before known and that they worship in bismarck the hero who has given them a country to love who has delivered them from the pettiness and self-satisfaction of philistinism now if this be so if indeed the countries of the world at large and germany in particular acknowledge him almost affectionately as the leading statesman of the day would it not be an interesting study to examine the degree of merit due to him personally the character of the present administration and what lasting good or lasting evil may be expected from this new phase of european politics the subject though its weight and its bulk alike excludes full treatment within the limits of an essay nevertheless since it intertwines itself with nearly every other question of moment a few remarks by an outsider may be acceptable none but the incorrigibly childish can be inclined to ascribe to good luck a prosperous career extending over near twenty-three years spent under the fiercest glare of the world's sunshine no minister of any age was more bitterly assailed or opposed even at the court of which he is now the acknowledged major damas in the manner of the pepins and other tomb myers of the frankish monarchy the king's brother prince charles detested the innovator whose opinions on the necessity of austria being removed from membership in a remodeled german confederation had for years leaked out from the despatch boxes of the foreign office even the junkers whose dauntless leader he had been before and after the revolutionary events of eighteen forty eight shrank instinctively from a man who could not be credited with veneration for the holy alliance it is remembered in berlin that on the nomination of one of them well at court a diplomatist of some standing to the post of under-secretary of state for foreign affairs the new member of the government confessed to his friends that he accepted the post in spite of bismarck's foreign policy and only in consideration of his contempt for parliamentarism the queen on the other hand brought up in principles of constitutional government and strongly attached to the english alliance viewed with horror the bold pugilist who was daily assailing not the persons only of the people's representatives but some of the very foundations of every parliamentary edifice yet fiercer was the animosity shown him on every occasion by the princess royal of england whose father had nearly taught her that a throne to be safe requires absolute solidity of institutions and agreement with the people and who seriously trembled for the preservation of her children's future her husband expressed himself forcibly on a public occasion against some reactionary measures of the government as the court so were the liberal parties so the people in general when a fanatic of the name of cone attempted bismarck's life in may of eighteen sixty six there were few persons who did not regret his failure it may be said with truth that for years two men only 
understood a portion, at least, of his political views and shared them. One was King William. Isolated, as Herr von Bismarck was, he learned to rely implicitly on his sovereign's faithfulness, and has had no reason to regret his trust. For the king, though greatly his inferior in intellect, and far from unblessed with legitimist predilections, was as firmly convinced as his minister that the Confederation of German States, and Prussia herself, might be swept away unless placed upon a new footing, in one of those tornadoes which used periodically to blow across the continent of Europe. Thus the new departure was as much his own program as Bismarck's, and although he started in 1861 with a hankering after moral rather than material conquests, he gradually understood the necessity for war, and has of certainly taken kindly, as the saying is, to material conquests of no inconsiderable magnitude. None even among Bismarck's modern sycophants would pretend that their hero was the inventor of German unity. Passionately, though not overwisely, had that ideal been striven after and suffered for by the best patriots in various parts of fatherland, their vision becoming hazy just as often as they attempt to combine two opposite claims, that of a national texture and that of a headship of Austria, which is non-German in a majority of its subjects and alien in nearly all its interests. The Frankfurt Parliament of 1848 marks the transition to a clear insight, inasmuch as its final performance, the Constitution of 1849, placed the new crown on the king of Prussia's head. When offered, it was haughtily declined under the applause of Bismarck and his friends. The king refused because its origin lay in a popular assembly. In Bismarck's eyes, its chief defect was that Prussia would be dictated to by the minor states. It was not until later, in 1851, when appointed Prussian ambassador to the Germanic Diet, chiefly because of his defense of the Treaty of Olmutz, which placed Prussia at the mercy of Austria, that he recognized the central point to be the necessity of thrusting Austria out of the Confederation. It is proved now that he was sagacious enough also to perceive that such a wrench would not lead to a permanent estrangement, but that Austria, removed once and for all from her incubus-like and dog-in-the-manager position within the Federate body, would become, in her own interest and that of European peace, New Germany's permanent ally. These, then, became the two purposes of his active life ever since the day when, at the age of thirty-six, he obtained a share of the responsibility in the management of affairs as ambassador in Frankfurt, first to transfer Austria to a position in the East, and then to bestow upon the fatherland political unity under Prussia, the royal prerogative and the latter remaining uncurtailed, so far as circumstances would allow. Thirty-four years have now elapsed. His opponents, in his own country or out of it, are at liberty to reiterate that he was born under a lucky star, that he merely took up the thread of German unification where the Frankfurt Parliament of 1849 had let it drop, that anybody could have utilized such mighty armaments of those of Prussia with the same effect, that, given total disregard of principle or moral obligations, the result, in the hands of any political gamester, must have been what it was. There is something to be set against each of these assertions. 
for it was not the goddess of fortune which pursued bismarck in the ungainly shape of his former friend that spiteful prince gortschakoff the frankfurt assembly had left the austrian riddle unsolved and apparently insoluble there was no hand in the country firm or skilful enough no brain sufficiently hard or enlightened as to the needs of the day not the king's not count arnim's not certainly that of any other known to his contemporaries and finally when a public man so deftly gauges the mental capacities or extent of power of his antagonists such as count boost or napoleon or earl russell that he knows exactly how far he can step with safety then such a gamester however terrible the risks to which he may have exposed his country is a great man complete unity of aims throughout power given to carry them out a wonderful absence of very serious mistakes and finally a life sufficiently prolonged to admit of retrospection in each of these respects the career of bismarck resembles that of mr disraeli the oft-told story of his diplomatic adventures at frankfort at vienna at petersburg and at paris and still more of his rulership in prussia since eighteen sixty two and germany since eighteen sixty six has been uniform under two aspects first as already mentioned in the stern continuity of his purposes and secondly in the mistaken view entertained regarding him at each successive period of his public life passing under review the whole career of this political phenomenon you naturally pause before its strangest and its most humorous feature that is that although living under the closet inspection he was misunderstood year after year who would consequently deny the possibility at least of bismarck's being so misunderstood by friend danfo at this present moment while those dispatches were written by him from frankfurt which poshinger's researches have now exhumed their writer was thought by his partisans just as much as by his enemies to be occupied solely with strengthening the solidarity of conservative interests and the supremacy of austria or with spinning the rope of steel which was to strangle all parliaments in germany and yet we know positively at present that with increasing vigor day by day did he warn his government against the scarcely concealed intention of austria avalir la prusta borde pour la anianter prince schwarzenberg's famous saying in eighteen fifty one we observe with surprise how quickly legitimist leanings disappear behind his own country's interests we stand aghast at the irony sway obtained by so young a man over the self-conceit of a vacillating yet dogmatic and willful king frederick william the fourth it was he whose advice given in direct opposition to bunsen's led to the refusal by prussia of the western alliance during the crimean war but he did not give this advice as german liberals then believed out of subservience to the autocrat of the north whose assistance his party humbly solicited in order to exterminate liberalism he persistently gave it to thwart austria and to preserve prussia then in no brilliant military condition from having to bear the brunt of muscovite wrath which he cunningly judged to be of more lasting importance in the coming struggles than the friendship of western europe and at a time when european politicians considered that he was the mouthpiece of schemers for a russo-french alliance 
in his repeated and successful endeavors to gain Napoleon's goodwill, he was adroitly sounding the French emperor's mind and character. He soon convinced himself that it was shallow and fantastic, and he built upon this conviction one of the most hazardous designs which ever originated in a brain observant of realities. That identical design, which eventually led Prussia some years later, first to Schleswig and then to Sedova, with the arbiter of Europe, as Napoleon was then called, stolidly looking on. And what is one to say of the four years of parliamentary conflicts, 1862 to 1866, during which no one doubted but that his object in life and his raison d'etre consisted in a statement of the Prussian king on the absolute throne of his ancestors, a reaction from all that was progressive to the grossest abuses of despotism. All this time he was fighting a desperate battle against backstairs influences, which with true instinct were deprecating and counteracting his schemes of aggrandizement and national reorganization. It is clear on looking back to that period, which has left such indelible marks on the judgment of many well-meaning liberals, that his exaggerated tone of aggressive defense in the Prussian Landtag, the furious onslaught of his harangues, were intended to silence the tongues at court which denounced him as a demagogue and a radical. Paradoxical as it may sound, one may safely assert that nothing more effectually helped King William in his later foreign policy than the opinion pervading all Europe in 1864 and 1866 that, having lost all hold upon the minds of his people, weakened and crippled in every sense of the word by Bismarckian folly, his majesty could never strike a blow. There was peace and concord in Germany between 1866 and 1867. Without becoming a liberal, and while opposing every attempt to outstep certain limits, Bismarck created and rather enjoyed an alliance with a majority formed in his favor by the national liberals and a moderate section of the conservatives. The German Empire, proclaimed by the German sovereigns at Versailles in January of 1871, was of his creation and while established upon somewhat novel principles of federation by a parliamentary statute, it looked to outsiders like a home for progress and liberty. There were dangers lurking, it is true, beneath many a provision of the new constitution, such as the absence of an upper house, and the substitution in its stead of delegates from the separate governments, acting in each case according to instructions received authorized to speak whenever they chose before the Reichstag, but deliberating separately and secretly, both upon bills to propose and upon replies to give to resolutions of the Reichstag. In fact, this Bundesrath, or Federal Council, represents the governing element under the Emperor, with functions both administrative and legislative. By an artificial method of counting, Prussia, although she would command three-fifths of all the voters by virtue of her population, has less than one-third. Thus the possibility of an imbroglio between the governments is ever-present, as well as that of a hasty vote in the popular assembly. It will never, probably, be quite understood why Prince Bismarck broke loose from a political alliance which it would seem had given no trouble whatever. In foreign affairs, the House, in its immense majority, abstained from even the faintest attempt at interference. As for patronage, 
it has been said that no appointment was ever solicited for anyone by a member of the Liberal Party. From ministerial down to menial posts, no claim was raised, no request preferred. If the section of moderate conservatives above mentioned has furnished a few ambassadors like Prince Hohenlohe, Count Munster, Baron Keudel, and Count Stolberg, that was by the chief's free will. Why, then, it has been asked, a change so absolute as the one the world has witnessed, from the saying of the Chancellor in 1877 that his ideal was to have high financial duties on half a dozen objects, and free trade on all others, to one of the most comprehensive tariffs in the world two years later? His own and his friend's explanations are lamentably deficient. Growing anemia and impoverishment of the country, drowning of native industry by foreign manufacturers, corn imported cheaper than produced, and what not. The present writer, looking from afar, has always thought two motives to have been paramount in the Chancellor's mind, when he separated from the Liberals and became not a convinced but a thoroughgoing protectionist. It is not said that these were his only motives. Chess players knew that each important move affects not only the figures primarily attacked, but changes the whole texture of the play. First, then, and foremost, fresh sources of income were wanted to make the finances of the empire independent from the several exchequers of the states, bound by statute to make up for any deficiency pro rata parte of their population. Two or three objects would have provided the needful, that is, spirits and beetroot sugar, and with due caution tobacco, or an imperial income tax, changing according to each year's necessities, or both systems combined. Tobacco, it is true, was tried, and the attempt failed. Spirits would bear almost any taxation, but the Chancellor does not choose to tread upon the tender toe of the great owners of land, who are potato growers, and consequently distillers on a large scale. And another important class of agriculturalists, the beetroot growers and sugar producers, were not to be trifled with either. But how about direct taxation? the manly sacrifices of free peoples, the plummet by which to sound the enlightenment of a nation. The Chancellor instinctively felt, I believe, that there he would be going beyond his depth, that under such a regime the free will of citizens must have the fullest swing. The prerogative would suffer, if not immediately, yet as a necessary sequence. And so he deliberately abandoned free trade and espoused indirect taxation and protection. Success. Let free traders say what they please on the subject. Success has accompanied Bismarck's genius on this novel field, as well as on the older fields, where all mankind acknowledges his superiority. For the coffers of the empire are filling. A motley majority in the Reichstag not only accepts, but improves upon his protectionist demands. He has become the demigod of the bloated manufacturing, mining, and landlord interests throughout the country. He is now about to win the last of the great industries, and the one which withstood his blandishments the longest, that is, the transoceanic carrying trade. He is credited with having improved the state of certain trades, even by such as know perfectly well that, like the former depression, the present improvement in those has been universal. The whole country is becoming protectionist. All young men, even in Hamburg and Bremen, 
believe in protection as the thing the prussian landlord whose soul was steeped in free trade so long as prussia was a grain exporting country cherishes protectionist convictions now that she must largely import cereals the bureaucrat who had never sworn by other economic lawgivers than adam smith and his followers now accepts professor adolphus wagner's ever-changing sophisms and as for the south and the west of germany why they adore the man who had fulfilled the dream of protection in which they as disciples of friedrich list had grown up it is true that all large cities even there are protesting against the lately imposed and quite lately increased duties upon cereals but then can any good thing come out of large cities compared to the difficulties that impede the action of the free trade party in germany mr bright's and mr cobdom's uphill work sinks into insignificance nothing to a beginner in the study of bismarck's character would appear so utterly puzzling as his demeanor toward the communists socialists or as they call themselves in germany social democrats one of his most trusted secretaries is an old ally and correspondent of herr karl marx the high priest of communism who toward the end of his london career rode the whirlwind and directed the storm of german socialism bismarck himself confesses to having received in private audience lasalle one certainly of the most capable men of modern germany and to whom as its first author a retrospective inquiry would trace back the present formidable closely ruled organization of socialist operatives of germany the first minister of the prussian crown was closeted once people say more than once but that does not matter with the ablest subverter of the modern fabric of society he found him mighty pleasant to talk to he liked his predilection for a powerful supreme authority overawing the organized masses though whether he did so in the interest of a dynasty of lasalles or of hohenzollerns seemed to herr von bismarck an open question after lasalle's tragic death in eighteen sixty four we observe how the prussian government while watching with argus eyes every excess of speech among liberals allowed his first successors schweitzer and others a vulgar set of demagogues such license of bloody harangue as has of late years got louis michel into trouble in republican france then we hear of nothing as between bismarck and the socialists for some years the years i have described above as years of peace and concord in germany till suddenly on the occasion of two attempts made in eighteen seventy eight by Holdel and nobeling against the emperor's life he came down upon that sect as with a sledgehammer his famous anti-socialist bill was at first rejected it passed into law only after a dissolution the electors having in their affectionate pity for the wounded emperor unequivocally given their verdict in favor of suppression it has since been reaccepted three times by an unwilling house and with exertions of the same man who had fostered and protected the beginnings of socialism and who had the watchword given out at the last general elections in eighteen eighty four that his serene highness the chancellor would prefer the sight of ten social democrats to that of one liberal deutsch freisenige now what is the clue to this comedy of errors no mere waywardness of perversity of character but some powerful bias 
and a first cousinship in principle must account for one of the strangest anomalies in modern history. Perhaps the following consideration will render both the bias and the first cousinship at least intelligible. Prince Bismarck is a good hater. Now, if he has any one antipathy stronger than another, and that through life, is that against the burgher class, the reverse of aristocrats, the born liberals, townsmen mostly, yet not exclusively, the bourgeois, as the French call them, although if I err not, the exact counterpart to the bourgeois species is not found on German soil. A law-abiding set, independent of government, paying their taxes, and thoroughly happy. When they, through their representatives, bade him defiance in 1862 to 1865, and thwarted his measures of coercion, his inmost soul cried, Accianta movebo! He sent for La Salle, he paid his successor's debts, and generally assisted the sect. So much for the bias. And now for the first cousinship. No student of history will deny that despotism, whenever it has arisen or been preserved in highly civilized communities, will extend more of a fatherly care to the masses than liberalism. This cannot be otherwise. For liberalism sets itself to educate the masses to self-responsibility and each individual to thrift and self-reliance. The sight of an able-bodied beggar is to a genuine liberal a source of anger first, and only on further contemplation, of pity. He will exert all his energies to remove every obstacle from out of the way of his poorer brethren. He will preach wise economy, and facilitate it by personal sacrifices and legislative inducements, but he will not tempt the government of his country to act as a second providence for the operative classes. Quite the reverse is Bismarck's opinion. According to him, the state should exercise practical Christianity. With titanic resolution to drive out Satan through Beelzebub, he does not shrink from acknowledging and proclaiming the right of labor. There is probably nothing left to say after your lips have spoken these unholy, blood-stained words. If there was, he would be the man to say it, rather than allow himself to be outbid by mob leaders of the socialistic feather. Draw out Trevay, forsooth. That phrase has cost thousands their lives in the Parisian carnage of June of 1848. In the mouth of Karl Marx and other outspoken champions of his cause, it means absorption by the state of all the sources of labor, such as land and factories, because by such absorption only can the state ensure work for the unemployed. In the mouth of Bismarck, it means a lesser thing, of course, in extent, but not in essence. As chief minister of Prussia, he has ably brought about the purchase of nearly all lines of railway within that monarchy. As chancellor of the empire, he has tried his very best to obtain a monopoly on tobacco. All accident insurance companies have already been ruined and their place taken. So far as accidents to factory hands, etc., are concerned by an imperial office. His mighty hand is stretched out already to suppress and absorb all other insurances. The kingdom of the Incas in ancient Peru, as described in Prescott's volumes, has probably not done more work for its subjects than Bismarck's ideal of a German empire would do for its inhabitants. With every species of occupation or enterprise managed directly by government, 
why should the ruler of an empire or of a socialist republic hesitate about proclaiming the right to labor? A critic might object that its proclamation by Bismarck in 1884 was premature, inasmuch as he had failed in carrying his monopoly bill and could not be certain of success regarding other state encroachments. Granted, but a first cousinship between his views on social reform and those of Mr. Bebel and Leibknecht is an actuality of modern Germany, and should be seen, too, by those who desire this central power of Europe to remain exempt from a social revolution. Cursory as this review of Bismarck's past life and present policy has of necessity been, some indulgent reader may perhaps bestow upon me, besides his thanks for having withstood the temptation to quote the pithy, and at times impassioned utterances of the wittiest man in power of the present day, just enough of his confidence to believe that I have suppressed no trait of importance. However, since there is one thing more important still than a great man, namely his country, let us not dismiss the interesting subject of this retrospect without inquiring what that country has gained and what lost through his agency. Germany possesses a federation, not constructed after any existing pattern, not made to please any theory, not the object of anybody's very passionate admiration, but accepted in order to alter, as little as possible, the accustomed territorial and political arrangements. In one sense it has no army, for the Prussian and Bavarian armies, although the empire bears the cost, still exist. In one sense it possesses not the indirect taxation, for the individual states do the collecting of custom-house duties, etc. In one sense it has scarcely any organ of administration, for the whole internal government, the schools, courts of law, and police, all belong to the single states. And foreign affairs, the navy, the post office, and railways in Alsace are the only fields of imperial direct administration. Yet, what it has is valuable enough. The empire rules the army and can legislate over and control a prodigious amount of national subjects. Its foreign policy is one. The military command is one. Certain specified sources of revenues are the empire's. Patriotic aspirations are fulfilled. The individual sovereigns in Germany possess a guarantee of their status. The operative classes, an opportunity for organization and improvement on a large scale. Monarchical feeling has gained, in depth, both generally and with personal reference to the emperor and to the crown prince, both representative men, in the best sense of the word, and the crown prince, the most lovable man of his day. Another salutary constitutional reform, not of Bismarck's making, for he gave his consent unwillingly, and not without first having married its beauty, but yet an effect of his great deeds, is the Prussian Kreis and Provincial Ordnung, first introduced in 1874. No more logical deduction was possible than this commencement of decentralization within the Prussian monarchy. Before that date, provincial diets had existed for fifty years, and a kind of assembly had also managed certain affairs for the Kreis, an administrative unit smaller than an English county, and averaging about 100,000 inhabitants. In the same proportion as German unity made progress, it was believed that self-government ought to become more extensively introduced, 
and the tendency of the blood toward the head or capital be obviated. The example of home rule presented by the Christ and the provinces of Prussia since this reform is not assuredly of a nature to frighten weak nerves, but much money is now usefully spent within and by the provinces independently of any decree from a central authority, and as regards willingness to work on provincial and, so to say, county boards, it is said to be beyond all praise. An English public man of high standing assured me some years ago that these Prussian beginnings of home rule had attracted the serious notice of Mr. Gladstone. I do not wonder at it. Another permanent good for which Germany seems indebted to Bismarck, and the last I will mention, is of quite modern date. I mean his colonial policy. Individual Germans have at all times, and in immense numbers, found their way across the sea. On the Baltic and North Sea coast, German ports, though few in number, yet command a very large trade. Next to the English, German traders form the most numerous community in every place, however remote, where business of any kind can be transacted. But to convert the inland Philistines, that vast majority of Germans who have never sniffed sea air, into enthusiasts for a colonial empire, required all Bismarck's ability and prestige. No doubt he descried in the movement a chance for a diversion of the public mind from obnoxious topics. It was useful to him to produce an impression as if the export trade, stagnating as it must under the baneful effects of modern protection, could rally under the influence of colonial enterprise. These considerations would not, however, suffice to explain his long-considered cautious proceedings in this manner. To comprehend his motives fully, it will be necessary to admit that his prescient mind would consider the time, apparently not very far distant, when what are now styled great powers will be dwindling fast by the side of such gigantic empires as seen intent upon dividing the earth's surface between them, like England with her colonial possessions, and Russia. The effect upon this country, its foreign policy, and the very character of its inhabitants would be alike cramping, unless a way for expansion was opened for each. When the political schemes of a considerable man are subjects of speculation, it is wiser to guess at something exalted if you wish to come near the truth. So probably in this case. No doubt he too has foreseen the reaction, which at no very remote period of German history will gain a mastery over people's minds, when failures and disappointments begin to crowd around each of the present equatorial enterprises. But he believes in his countrymen's capacity to overcome failure and disappointment without recourse to costly warlike expeditions, for which Germany is unfitted by her institution of universal and short military service. End of chapter 31